Welcome to season two of the Brown Woman Health Podcast. My name is Meek, and today we will be talking all things breast cancer in the South Asian community with a very special guest, Dr. Simon Mahotra. I'm super excited for today's episode. And before we start, I'd just like to remind you all, please join the Brown Woman Health community and further engage with us through Instagram and Twitter. You'll see supplemental infographics that accompany today's episode and a lot more. And so I am so excited for our guest today. Dr. Simran Maholtra is very, very cool. I incidentally know her from her very viral and cute wedding video, but also because of her amazing Instagram page, which you can follow at drsimran.maholtra. Dr. Simran Maholtra is a palliative care specialist as well as a BRCA previvor. So I'm so excited for today's episode. Thanks, Amik. I'm happy to be here. I'm excited to chat with you today. Um, So my name is Simran. I am a uh, professionally a triple board certified physician um, in internal medicine, hospice and palliative care, and most recently lifestyle medicine. But more importantly, I'm a mom. Um, So I have a two and a half year old and a four year old. Um, married to the love of my life, who's also a doctor. We are both originally Canadian, but we met in the States and we live um, in Maryland now. So, and and like you said, I'm a, a BRCA1 previvor and we can get into what that means uh, a little bit later. So that's me. Thank you so much for being on our podcast and we're super excited to have you. Um, could we just like learn a little bit more about your story? What has your journey been like from a student to now? Yeah, so for me, I I took a little bit of the unconventional route. Um, When I was 18, I left, um, I grew up outside of Toronto, actually. And um, when I was 18, I left home. Um, That was 2006. Oh, man, I'm dating myself. All right. So (laughs) I was 18. I um, went and did a six-year pre-med MD internationally. Um, And then like most of my colleagues in medicine, I pretty much spent the last decade or more of my life just you know from one step of you know the trajectory to the next medical school and internship then residency and then like you know a million board exams along the way so I spent a lot of the time just studying away from home which means I missed a lot of milestones I missed um, births I missed deaths I missed birthdays I missed weddings I missed a lot um so that, that was, of course, really tough, but that's kind of part of the whole medical journey, I think. Um, so it's a bittersweet because when you get to the end, you, there is a lot of like, it was worth it. I, I, I made it, but it, it was hard along the way, right? Especially being so far. And I was in my 20s. So that's kind of the time where, you know, most of my friends back home were partying and like, you know, loving university. So it was, it was an interesting um, journey. And I, I think the other end of it is once you make it into residency, I was, and I did it in the US, I was considered an immigrant technically, right? Cause I'm Canadian. So I dealt with all the visa struggles um, and that is really tough. Um, and so actually just recently I got my green card. So I'm like, I'm feeling so blessed and so happy because it was such a long journey, yeah. you know? Yeah, no, so. I, that, Congrats on the green card, first of all. Um, and yeah, no, I think just being someone, I, I'm about to finish undergrad and I just that thought of, wow, like now it's med school, residency, all of that. It's a lot of years. So just knowing that at the end, there's a lot of fruition and like it's worth it, is, it means a lot. So 
Yeah. With every step, it's like, you can kind of see the light at the end of the tunnel. It's like every step, you're a little bit closer, a little bit closer. But you know what the crazy thing is? It's like when you're in it, it just, it flies by. Like looking back, it seems like a really long road, but when you're in it, it just, I don't know, the time just flies. So I guess that's a good thing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, that, that, that is a good thing. I think I kind of see that with the the pandemic, for example, just knowing like, oh, I'm going to be, um, on campus in the fall, I'm going to be graduating soon. And all of that is just crazy. And it does go by super fast, which is, yeah. yeah. Um, if you could go back to your, like, uh, to yourself, like back in when you left, like for, for this program, would, would there be something that you would you wish you could tell yourself or something that you would, I don't know, do differently about your journey? I think about this a lot, a lot now, especially now that I have kids, right? So it's kind of going back to my younger self, like, what would I, what would I do? Or what would I say? And I, I often go back to like, even my high school days, like those were, those were some tough times in like, you know, I had the frizzy hair, had the horrible teeth, like all of that stuff. And then you look back on your life and, and like your younger days, teens, twenties, and you think about all like, the little things that, you know, I stressed about or, you know, the, the relationships that didn't stick friendships or boyfriends or this or that. And you just stress so much about it. And you realize like on this end now in my early thirties with a young family, it's just like, I wish I didn't spend so much time um, crying, but like also just like, I just feel like wasted time. Like, you know, like, like, and now I'm, I'm a palliative care physician. So I work with people at the end of life. So now you realize how short life really is. And you realize, you know, when you're like 18, 20, 25, like those are like some of the best years of your life because you have no responsibility. Like the world is your oyster. Right. So I think I would just tell her to chill out, Simran, like live your life, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that, that's really good advice, I think, to get now because I definitely spend a lot of time stressing over those things and like, yeah, definitely <laughs> will chill out more. So I, another thing that really struck, struck me from your page is there's a lot of like you've mentioned being a previvor for cancer. So what's your journey with that been like? Yeah, so I guess it goes back to my mom. Um, so my mom was um, 33 when she was diagnosed with uh, breast cancer. I was 13 at the time. Um, and so that kind of came and hit our family out of nowhere. Um, and it was also a time where, you know, there, the internet wasn't huge. There wasn't all these support communities and people just talking, sharing their stories, you know, on all these platforms. And so it was, and also of course, growing up, you know, in a Punjabi family, it was just like very hush hush and like, we didn't really talk about it. And, so all I really knew at 13 was cancer is bad. Cancer means someone's going to die. And, you know, I, I didn't know much. And so at that time, it was just kind of like, I feel like my mom, so my mom is originally from India. She moved to uh, Toronto when she was 18 years old, you know, arranged marriage, the whole she- shebang. And um, so basically, you know, everyone in my dad's family, her entire, her family's all in India still. So my dad's family kind of just like, you know, kind of supported her through treatment. You know, she had a lumpectomy, she had six, six weeks of chemo, 12 weeks of radiation, but everything was kind of behind closed doors. Like we just didn't really talk about it. And, and then she was done with treatment and then it was just kind of like, okay, good. You know, Minnie's fine. Like, let's move on with life. And kind of just like, <laughs> you know, ignored 
all the things of survivorship that come after cancer, right? Um, and so anyways, that chapter closed. And then fast forward to, I guess, like 2014, I was a second year internal medicine resident. And I get a phone call from my cousin in India. And my Masi, my mom's older sister, was diagnosed with um, something called primary peritoneal cancer, which is an aggressive form of ovarian cancer. And in between there, we had heard about other people in India, but like nothing that actually got to us with details because again, everything's hush hush behind the doors, right? So um, when we heard about my Masi, she basically, you know, got treatment and surgeries and all that stuff. And about a little over a year later, ended up passing away. And that was just like eye opening to me. I just kind of was like, okay, what is this? Like, first mom and now Masi. And so then I started talking to some of my oncology attendings and they were kind of like, Simran, you should tell your mom to get genetic testing. And you know, this, this is a red flag. And um, she did get the genetic testing um, when she was first diagnosed, but at that time it was negative. So then after my Masi passed away, I told her to get testing again. She did. And this is when the whole BRCA thing came up. So BRCA um, is the genetic mutation that we have BRCA1. Um, and it's kind of, it's, you know, genetic mutations in general are not super common, but this is in the breast and ovarian cancer world, one of the more common ones that you hear about. Um, and so anyway, so after that, um, she ended up getting her uterus and her ovaries out prophylactically, which means, you know, for prevention. Um, and then that chapter closed, then it kind of came my time. Um, uh, about a year and a half later, I was 26 years old, just about to finish residency, about to get married. And I decided like before I got married, this is something I felt like was going to have a major impact on my husband and my married life and something that I, I felt like he deserved to know before he got into a lifelong relationship with me. And so we got tested, I got tested, and then I found out I carried the same genetic mutation as my mom. And the reason that this is important is because... Um, the average woman risk of breast cancer is about 12%. When you carry this BRCA1 mutation, um, it means that your lifetime risk of breast cancer goes up to 87%. Um, and your lifetime risk of ovarian cancer goes up to like 60%. Mm -hmm. uh, so this mutation actually in this gene, BRCA, this gene actually protects you. So it's an oncogene. It actually protects you from cancer. So when it's not working, you're at higher risk of these cancers. So for me, it was kind of like, all right, Simran, you're, 30, you're 26. I met with the oncologist. I met with like all of these people. And they were kind of like, you need to have these surgeries for prevention as soon as you are done childbearing because your mom was 33 when she was first diagnosed. And so then I had screening MRIs basically every year. Uh, my husband's 10 years older than me. So we ended up getting pregnant fairly quickly in between. I had a few scares um, and I had to have biopsies and all of that just completely freaked me out. Right. And in the midst of all of that, what after residency, I ended up going to do a fellowship in hospice and palliative care. So now I was taking care of a lot of people, you know, with advanced cancers, young patients with advanced cancers. And so for me, it was just it was very overwhelming, um, but that's kind of that. That kind of brings me to the more recent, like last year or so. Um, but that's kind of been my my story, and I can I can share the ending in a little while when we chat some more. But, but yeah, that's been my my journey with cancer. It's been it's been very long, and I can say 
I know cancer pretty up close and personal now between my family and between my patients. So you mentioned being from Canada, being from a Punjabi family and all of that. So what was the role of just the general South Asian community when it comes to something like cancer and treating it and like just even processing it? Community is so important and and especially within our you know, South Asian community, I think talking about it is even more important because it's even, it's weird. Like, I feel like 20 years ago it was definitely um, worse, but like now more people are open to talking about it, but still it's actually, they're not, you know what I mean? Like yeah. they are, if you go looking for it, but no one openly wants to talk about it. A thousand percent on what you were saying with the stigmas in the South Asian community, particularly, it's definitely very hush hush. But then the people who do talk about it are able to confide with each other and get different referrals for different physicians. That's what I've seen, at least within my own family, which was amazing. And I remember there was a doctor at the Gurdwara, at the Sikh temple as well, who was not an oncologist, not a surgeon, but still had the technology to view my mother's scans. So I was able to go see, oh, it had an past a certain point and getting a sense of relief that I would not have gotten if I didn't have this sort of community who was there to help me view these scans or anything like that. But as you said, it was definitely, it's still very stigmatized and still very hush-hush and no one really wants to talk about it in our community. Now you have the generational gap, right? So like, I'm assuming your mom and my mom are probably around the same age, but like now my mom has kind of shattered the glass ceiling completely. So she's totally open. She supports other women that go through cancer. Um, you know, my mom, my parents actually ended up getting divorced. So she's just been through so much that I think now she's just like such an advocate and she, she, she's helped so many women in the South Asian community. And then I took it one step further being her, you know, daughter and just kind of challenged every single stigma that probably exists within our community this past year with everything that I did for my health. Um, and that might be a good segue into this conversation. So, you know, for me, you mentioned pre-viver earlier, right? So, um, so when, when you are diagnosed with cancer, um, you have cancer and after you've been treated with cancer, you then are the coin, you're, you're, termed um a survivor right um or a thriver if 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 you if your you know your cancer is still ongoing whatever um for people like me who have now found out at a very early stage that they carry a genetic mutation that puts them at a very high lifetime risk of cancer um they have certain options um for prevention and prophylaxis and a lot of it there are some medications that you can take but most of it is surgical um, options. And so for me, you know, as a BRCA1 or BRCA1 carrier, my greatest risk is for breast and ovarian cancer, but also there's risks of other cancers like melanoma and pancreas and things like that. So for me, as, as a palliative care physician, right, I've cared for many young women now with breast, ovarian, other cancers over the last several years. And some of them crazy enough, have had the same genetic mutation as me. So imagine, you know, being 28, 29, 30 years old and caring for someone at the end of life who is the exact same age as you, who has the exact same genetic mutation as you. Like, talk about paralyzing anxiety, right? Like, when you come home. Um, it was crazy. Like, it was it, it just every single time, the same kind of emotional response within me. Um, and so 
seeing that as a physician. And then, like I said, seeing what I saw with my mom, like I've witnessed the worst case scenarios of cancer, right? I've seen the menopause, I've seen the chronic pain, I've seen the suffering, um, the loss of autonomy, leaving behind young children, mm-hmm. um, and then death. I've seen death, right? Very, very close. And so for me, I, like I said, I've gotten to know these cancers so up close and personal that for me, I always knew like, okay, I'm going to do everything in my power to not let this happen to me. And that got even stronger after I had kids, right? The maternal instinct. So I always looked at knowing about my genetic mutation as a blessing in disguise. I never looked at it like, why me? You know, why is this happening? I always looked at it like this is the option and choice I get to make for my body and for my life that my mom and my patients never got to have. Right. So for me, it was never if I'm going to have preventative surgeries, but when am I going to have them? And like I said, the doctors were kind of like, you need to do them as soon as you can. And my goal in my head was always, okay, mom was diagnosed at 33. I need to have all of this done by 33 years old. Um, Having said that, it was also very important for me to breastfeed my kids. And so I ended up having my kids 19 months apart and I breastfed both of them for a year. And that brought us to January of 2020. Um, I'd finally done with my second, you know, my second baby, everything, breastfed, everything. And then I started interviewing doctors for surgery. And for me, it was a mastectomy. So a bilateral mastectomy and then uh, a total hysterectomy. I didn't have to get them both at the same time, but the youngest person in my mom's side of the family, again, I don't have the details because it's hush hush, but the youngest person from what I know is 31 years old when she was diagnosed with some form of ovarian cancer. And to me, ovarian cancer was always scarier because there's no screening tests for ovarian cancer, at least for you know, the breast, there's mammograms, there's MRIs, all of that. Um, and so I actually ended up now for almost seven months out. I was supposed to have my surgeries in June of 2020 and then COVID happened. And then we got really busy at the hospital. My husband's also a doctor. He's an ICU doctor. So then my surgeries got canceled and then they got rescheduled for uh, September 2nd, 2020. And I ended up having both surgeries at the same time, just because I just, I just wanted to get it done and I wanted to move on with my life. So I ended up getting, this is a mouthful. Okay. I got a bilateral mastectomy um, with aesthetic flat closure, which means I didn't get any reconstruction. And then I got a total hysterectomy with a salpingo-oophorectomy, which means I got my uterus and my ovaries and my tubes out. And now I'm in surgical menopause on an estrogen patch um, for hormone replacement. So that is helpful. <laughs> so I guess, how was that procedure? I mean, that sounds like a a lot. And when my mom had her mastectomy as well, like it took a while for her to just like, you know, recover from that. I still think like, it's still like a process. So how's that going for you? Like that journey? Um, for me, it was really scary at first. Like I said, like, just because of what I saw with my patients. Um, and then when I really started like researching in January about the surgeries and everything, you know, I was trying to find people that look like me who had these surgeries and everything, but I, it was really hard to find someone, you know, in her, you know, early thirties, young mom, Indian, like there was nobody. And, and then on top of that, deciding not to get reconstruction. Like, yeah. What do you mean you're going flat? 
right? Like that was just like mind blowing to like most of, you know, the people in my life. Um, but it, 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 it has seriously, I feel like all going through all of this has literally brought me to the place in my life where I am supposed to be like, mm-hmm. I have never felt more empowered and strong and resilient in my entire life. And I just, yeah, like, I really believe like, this is the best version of me that's ever existed. And, and now being a mom of two young kids, like, this is the mom that they need to, to just make them the best versions of them. Like, there are literally zero uh, stigmas and taboos and all of that. Like, they are allowed to be and are going to be everything and anything that they want to be. And that is because I've been through all of this, you know? Um, so it's not been easy having said all of that. It's been, there's been days where I've had the debilitating anxiety. Like you said, I've had the fear I've had cried. I've, I've done all of that, but then I stepped out of it and I stepped into my truth and my power and I got to the other side and I had everything done before my 33rd birthday, which was last month. And so I'm just, I'm just really damn proud of myself. (laughs) It's a lot. And the fact that it happened, like, I think also during the pandemic, I think also add another layer to this because I know it's during these isolating times, sometimes it's hard to just like, like, especially with anxiety, find that sort of support group or like connect with the same people and know help with that healing process like just listening to you talk like that actually has been one of the most empowering pieces of my journey is like as I went through it I had people dm me because I I was never really huge on social media until this time last year is when I made my account public Uh and I was never really huge on social media but the reason I went was because I was looking for someone like me I was looking for a community as I was about to go into surgery and all this stuff but it I found lots of people, like I found people of color and all that stuff, but it's just different. Like I didn't find anyone that was Punjabi. I didn't find anyone in that South Asian community that I was kind of really looking to connect to. Mm-hmm. Um, and having said that, like my parents were always very liberal. So they've supported me throughout this whole journey. You know, what decision I made, what decision I didn't make. They've always supported me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then for the rest of my extended family, I just, I didn't really take any solicited advice. Like I didn't ask anyone's opinion. I didn't, and if someone wanted to give it to me, I would just kind of say, no, thanks. Right. Like this is my life, my journey, my body, my, you know, my choice. So, yeah. but the best part about this has been like, has been all the young South Asian women that have reached out to me on Instagram and DM me and just gave me their story. So much of what I could relate with. Some of them had the same mutation. Some of them had different mutation, but you know, a lot of them said, like, my family doesn't support my choice to do preventative surgery. My family doesn't support my choice to get genetic testing. And so just having the ability to educate them and empower them to stand up for themselves and make that decision for their body in their life has just been like, I'm getting goosebumps talking about it, because it's, I don't think I would have ever had that opportunity, you know? Yeah. Uh, No, that's amazing. And I'm so glad that you even shared your journey on Instagram, because then I I'm having this conversation with you and it's amazing and also it's interesting because the reason why brown girl health started was I read a paper that was literally called and I pulled this up for this 
but it was called Understanding Canadian Punjabi Speaking South Asian Women's Experiences of Breast Cancer. And it was this qualitative oh. study. And the main thing that was I got out of that paper and like why I even started this whole account was that there's not enough in this paper, it literally states there's not enough research. Like we didn't have enough research participants. Um and it, it was amazing because it, it talked about like the Eurocentric model of coping and all of this stuff, but it also talked a lot about these stigmas and like, because there's not enough research, there's not a lot of like solutions for all of this. And that I got, I remember reading that getting super angry and then it got made this page because I like making infographics, but I think, yeah, it's, it's amazing that you're having this platform and like being more vocal vocal about it especially over something like this I'm so glad that like so many people are able to reach out to your account as well and yeah it's been amazing I, I think and, and that's the other thing about like you know when you look at the data and you look at the numbers like most of the people that have genetic mutations are Caucasian but yeah. they're really not it's it's just because South Asians and other minorities like African Americans they only represent a small number is because there's uh it's not because there's lack of prevalence is there's lack of testing yeah uh, right and lack of awareness and so it's really an under under um, estimation um but specifically kind of in the south asian community like i said like even within my own family like i was digging like trying to understand like okay now to this day finally i got a number and there's been nine women on my mom's side of the family that have died of some sort of female cancer but it took me this long, like it's took me years to finally understand like, okay, this person had that and this person had that, like no one has wanted to openly kind of just come out and, and talk about what is going on. And just recently, my mom's youngest Masi was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. And again, the genetic conversation, mutation conversation came up. And even to this day, like, you know, so many of them don't want to hear anything about it. Like, mm-hmm not real like no it's not real like a mastectomy why would I do that like you know like there's so many expectations about what body image should look like and you know women not being empowered to go and seek medical care and and all of that like we I just feel like in our community we don't put enough priority and emphasis on taking care of ourselves as women, right? Yeah. We're like the whole emphasis is taking care of everybody else, mm-hmm. right? That was in that paper that I was just talking about where um, women aren't, what you said, they don't feel that empowered, but also because they don't put themselves first most of the time, they don't put themselves first when it comes to testing or seeking that sort of medical help. Or if they notice the lump, they'll take a lot more time to get that tested or checked than it would be for others. It's wild to me because now finally that I'm a mom, like I realize that I can't care for my kids if I'm not the best version of me. Yeah. You know, like if my cup is empty, like I can't give them the best mom that they deserve or even be the best wife or the best doctor or the best anything right and I'm glad that mindset is shifting now with our generation but I look at my mom like holy moly like she literally moved across the earth at 18 years old lived in a joint family with my you know grandparents and my dad and his brother and their three kids so she literally was just like you know the manager of the house like you know fresh breakfast, lunch, dinner for everybody, cleaning the house on her own, driving the kids everywhere. Like, I'm just like, wow, with zero time to herself. And then you wonder why she got cancer at 33, right? Like all of that, like being a palliative care, like a doctor, 
family, all of that. How are you like juggling it? How are you making time for yourself? Like, I, I think, um, like I said earlier, like this mutation has probably been um, the greatest blessing of my life. Also, not just from like decreasing my risk of cancer from a, you know, medical, using me- medical technology and surgery standpoint, but also shifting my lifestyle. Yeah. Um, so in 2015, when I found out um, about the mutation, I was just like, the statistics were overwhelming. Like they were just like, it just feels like you're going into a black hole and you're doomed. Like there's nothing you can do. There's nothing in my power, right? Nothing in my control. And so really to like take back some of that autonomy and control my life, I was like, okay, let me figure out what I can control. And as I started kind of like delving into the research, I really started coming across things like nutrition and and, and lifestyle and really evidence-based things that, you know, would be able to give me back that control I was looking for. And that's, that's where I came across this book. It's, it's actually kind of funny. It's called How Not to Die um, by Dr. Michael Greger. And it is like a Bible of evidence-based nutrition information. Uh, oh my God. Like, I recommend everybody to read that book. And that's like the one thing, right? In medical school, I didn't learn. I learned like, yes, lifestyle is the first thing that we do for prevention of all these chronic illnesses, but then they don't teach us what that means after that or how to help people implement it. So when I started reading about lifestyle, evidence-based lifestyle interventions, like my, my, my brain was just blown. And the very first person that implemented all these things that I was reading about was myself, right? So I started, I became vegetarian in 2015. Um, and then as I just continued to learn more and more and more about like the different foods we eat and the impact on cancer and heart disease and like all of these chronic illnesses that, you know, are, are taking over this country at epidemic levels, I, I, I then transitioned to more of a whole food plant-based diet or veganism in 2018. Um, and then in July of 2020, um, just before my surgeries in September, I just had like a lifestyle revamp. And because the whole world was shut down, it really helped because I, I was home. Um, but I have now pretty much dedicated the first, I call it my hour point five of power every morning. Um, so I wake up at five, um, you know, when my kids are still sleeping and I, I do my exercise, I do you know, 20 minutes of bike. And then I do about 20 or 30 minutes of strength training. Um, it's crazy. Even as a young person, you have surgery and you get so weak, right? So I'm, I'm working a lot on my upper body strength and getting stronger. And then I do 15 minutes of, of meditation and visualization and gratitude in the morning. Um, and then, yeah. And then I start my day and holy moly, it makes the biggest difference. Right. And, 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 it's hard. I'm not saying it was easy. I started with adding 15 minutes earlier, 15 minutes earlier, 15 minutes earlier to now six months later, waking up at 5 a.m. So that has been, I think, the biggest impact on kind of my quality of life, but also not feeling guilty at the end of the day. Like if I haven't, you know, read the chapter I was supposed to read or done something else on my to-do list, I don't feel guilty because I've already kind of put in the work to take care of myself in the morning, you know? Wow. Uh, so that's huge. I guess my, my question is, 
do you have any tips for that? I know even for waking up at 5 a.m., you mentioned it's gradual, like 15 minutes. And I think I'm going to try that now because I've been trying to do that. But yeah, any any tips for that? And especially with South Asian foods, I know we have like a lot of us like to put a lot of cream or like the buttered chicken, obviously, maybe not chicken, but even paneer and all of that. So was it hard not having those foods as well? So I think the biggest thing is when it comes to uh, creating new habits, you want to do it with the intention of having lasting change, right? Sustainability is key. And so, you know, the whole January 1st debacle, right? Like, okay, I'm going to go to the gym, I'm going to gym membership, I'm going to change my diet, I'm going to do all this stuff and you do well for two weeks and then you have a stressful day at work and it's like, oh, I don't feel like cooking, I don't feel like going to the gym, I'm just going to Netflix and chill right um and and that's all fine but everyone has bad days but that's why radical change for most people is not sustainable um and so I always tell people um that it's so important to be clear about why you're doing something right the how will come later you have to clearly define like, what, why am I doing this? What is my purpose? And if you have that driving force, then it that how will become easier. And you'll do a little bit. If it's not working, then you'll just shift your, your track. You'll shift your track until you figure out what does work for you. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's number one, defining your how, uh, defining your why, sorry. And then number two is it's not about, it's not about, you know, the radical change, but it's about the little things that you do every single day that are going to make the biggest impact for your quality of life. Yeah. Okay. So even if that means, like I said, you know, I'm going to set my alarm clock for 15 minutes earlier, you know, today, and I'm going to get on the bike for 10 minutes. Right. A lot of times I think where people go wrong is like, when they think about working out, they think about going to the gym, they think about running for an hour, um, or they think about, meditation it's like 30 minutes of sitting by myself in silence like I think that's where we're getting it all wrong we just got to implement little things every single day so if you want to incorporate more movement into your day you know maybe just wake up 10 minutes earlier and do a full body strength training for 10 minutes right and that might just be squats or it might just be a plank or it might just be something little like that or if you want to incorporate more meditation it might just mean sitting for three minutes you know or two minutes like so it, that, and that's how I started. It's just very little. Um, but then eventually as that becomes a habit, and also the other thing is, as you start noticing the difference and you start feeling better, then you are more driven to, you know, move to the next level and then the next level. And then eventually you get to the point where it's like, okay, I'm going to wake up at 5 a.m. And then the day that you don't do it, you don't feel good. So you're like, oh, I need to get back to doing that because that's what makes me feel good, right? You get that energy in the morning. And then, like I said, at the end of the day, you're the best version of yourself, not only for yourself, but for your kids and for your husband, for your patients, for everyone around you. I know you've also mentioned like the concept of lifestyle medicine. Is that something like building habits? Is that like a huge part of this practice? And what exactly is lifestyle medicine? Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, so as I, as I picked up that book by Dr. Michael Greger, when I was 26, he's one of the pioneers of lifestyle medicine. And um, the definition is basically it's an evidence-based approach um, of using um, these six lifestyle pillars. Okay. So I'll name them for you. So it's diet. So it's mostly a whole food plant-based diet, um, movement or exercise, 
sleep optimization, avoiding risky substances, right? Things like tobacco and alcohol. Um, and then relationships and then stress management. Um, and so it's those six things, um, but very much so evidence-based, right? And using them for the prevention, the treatment, and then even reversal of chronic disease, um, basically by replacing unhealthy habits with healthier ones. And the reason this book in particular blew my mind is because I was, so I was a fellow doing my palliative care fellowship and hospice fellowship, right? So mostly dealing with people with serious illness, mostly dealing with end of life care. And in the very first chapter, he describes um, his grandmother who was 65 years old and she was diagnosed with heart disease or she had heart disease, but now she was, she had end stage heart disease and she was sent home with hospice care. Hospice care is for anyone who doctors believe may have six months or less to live, right? So basically end of life. And I guess that was not cool with her. And so she actually uh, sought out this intensive lifestyle program um, in California, um, which was run by this guy named Dr. Nathan Pritikin. He was like literally one of the first, first pioneers of lifestyle medicine. Anyways, she radically, and these are the people who with radical change, they have such, such clear reasons why they want to do it because now they're about to die. That's when people have like that radical change. That's when it sticks, right? Because yeah. your purpose is just so strong, right? So she went and, um, and she basically transformed her, her, um, her lifestyle and actually ended up reversing her heart disease. Okay. So this is a lady who was told she had six months left to live. And then she reversed her, her heart disease and ended up living another 30 years and died at 95. So here I am reading this. Okay. I just found out about my genetic mutation, but also I'm doing a fellowship in hospice and palliative care, caring for people at the end of life. Yeah. Why have I not learned this? Like, why have I not, you know, why, why hasn't anyone mentioned this to me in the last decade of my training that like, there is this much power in lifestyle, right? Yeah. And so that totally kind of shifted my trajectory um, of my career, actually. Um, so I finished my fellowship, I am working as a hospice and palliative care physician now, um, palliative care mostly, but uh, in November, I actually took the board exam to get um board certified as a lifestyle medicine physician. Um, and now I'm actually working on getting my uh, national health and wellness coaching certification um, because it's one thing to be the expert and know all the evidence and know all the information and to tell it to people, but then it's a completely different hat to wear as a coach to help them implement those changes to create, you know, sustainable, lasting change. And we don't learn that in medical school. Something that's also been on my mind is what got you to choose palliative care as, you know, your specialty? Um, that's a really good question. I um, seem to just be interested in things in medicine that are not taught very well in medical school and <laughs> residency. <laughs> so you know, I started off my internship, my very first rotation, I was um, an intern in the ICU. Okay. Um, I, I remember it was 3am one night and um, I had a patient who was a Jehovah's Witness. Um, and she had this fungating, you know, reproductive cancer. And so she had just come back from surgery and she was bleeding out, basically. Her hemoglobin was like three. That's extremely low for anyone that doesn't know. So I couldn't give her blood products because she was Jehovah's Witness. And so my second year resident, 
basically was like, okay, Simran, go talk to the family. Like she's going to die tonight. So you need to talk to the family. <laughs> I was in my first week of residency. Wow. And here I was just being pushed in at 3am to talk to this family, to tell them that their mom's dying. I had no idea where to begin. Cause that was nothing that I'd ever learned about in medical school, like about communication or breaking bad news or talking about, you know, family meetings. And so then after that experience and, and it was, it went horribly, by the way, I will never forget it for the rest of my life, because of course I didn't know how to navigate it. And of course the family like just lost it at me. And so I will not forget that experience. And then just kind of going through you know, that first year of internship, especially in the ICU, like I just felt so bad for the families. Like oftentimes we were just doing all these things to the patients and kind of making the families feel like this person's going to go back to being the fully independent functional person that they were. And like, you know, two, three, four weeks later, now we pull them into a room and tell them, sorry, there's nothing more we can do. Yeah. And they're just like, what? Like, where did that come from? I had like, we, we blindside them every single time. And then I met my husband who was an ICU doctor and he was like, you would be really good at palliative care. And he was like, you should really, at that time we were, you know, we were just friends, but he was like, you should really look into it. And that's when I, I realized that palliative care is a thing. Like I could do a fellowship in this, you know, and, and I always wanted to do a specialty where I could spend time with people and talk to people. So I, I, I thought I was going to do primary care, but you know, in the States, you know, for a new patient, you have like 30 minutes and for a follow-up, you have like 15 minutes and people in this country have multiple medical problems. And so to provide good quality care in that little time is just not possible. So I was like, okay, primary care is out. But then when I learned palliative care, like, you know, you get to spend an hour with your families, you get to talk to them, you get to really get to know them and their values and their goals and, you know, help them again, stand up for how they want their life to look like. You know, so, so most of my patients now are, are people that are seriously ill. So they have, you know, advanced illness, either heart failure, heart disease, cancer, kidney, liver. Like I see patients with all sorts of medical problems. Um, and I, what I do is I help them with symptom management. So the goal is always to optimize quality of life. Um, and I also help them, like I said, just kind of define what their goals are for their life and make sure that, you know, in medicine, there's a lot of things we can do to keep people alive, right? But making sure that we're not just doing things to them, but only doing things that they want that will actually provide them a meaningful benefit and quality of life. Um, so it's really about patient empowerment at the end of the day, actually. That's amazing. I think when I first heard palliative care, I was like, that must be so, I don't know, it, it's draining in a sense, or like, it's just, I, I can't imagine, you know, delivering like that sort of bad news. I, and I'm surprised, I, I always figured they taught you in medical school, like how to go through that, but I'm surprised that they don't. And no, I'm sure that's they don't. Every single time, like I have medical students and residents with me, they're like mind blown, like when they rotate with me, because they're like, why don't we learn this? And it's like, yeah. So that's something that definitely, I think now it's changing but definitely not uh it's definitely something that should be at the core of training right because like regardless of where you are uh what field of medicine you are at the end of the day we're all human right so we're all part of that circle of life Uh, and whether you're a cardiologist or a a lung doctor or a kidney doctor cancer doctor your patients are going to die right and so it's so important for you to be able to 
sit down with them and have that conversation and help them plan, right? It's not about blindsiding them right at the end, you know, when there really is nothing, but like sitting down with them, you know, months earlier than that and helping them kind of map out what this looks like. Um, it's one of those things that you can't really learn from a presentation, you know, or a textbook. It's like, you have to be in the moment and you have to learn like, okay, what did I say that went right? Um, what did I say that didn't go right? Um, you yeah. know, and so every time you reflect on each meeting and you walk out a little bit better and more effective for the next time. And, and one of the things that's always driven me is just like really, truly sitting in that moment with that family and that patient and, you know, one of the most vulnerable times of their life and really kind of stepping into my empathy and my compassion and, and really sitting in there with them in that moment. Um, I think has always been what's allowed me to keep doing this work. Cause it's really hard, especially this past year at the pandemic, it was just like, Holy moly. Like even the, the hard palliative care I knew before was turned upside down on its head. And it was like even harder than I could have ever imagined. Right. And, um, I think one of the things that's always driven me is like, you know, they're going to forget, like at the end of the day, like all these people are going to forget what we did in the hospital um, or what we said, but they're never ever, I think it's Maya Angelou's quote, right? It, we're ne they're never going to forget how, how we made them feel. So I think that's kind of what drives me. And, and again, like having been through everything with my family with cancer and my own experience now as a patient mm -hmm. um, with this genetic mutation and the surgeries like it's totally changed my perspective um, it's really hard to be a patient it really is and a family member it's really hard so I just remember that and I'm like thinking back to my mom's treatment and all the doctors we saw and it wasn't the qualification or even she didn't go for the most prestigious hospital even though we're like right by New York City and Sloan's right there she went for the doctor who made her feel more at ease so oh, yeah I mean you could have like the smartest doctor but if they're robotic and they have no feelings and they can't you know relate to you at all like your experience is going to be totally different than if you have a doctor who's human. Right. And like, like I, you know, I, this past year is, like I said, it's been so crazy that like a lot of, because it's been all virtual, right. I've done most of the stuff by telemedicine and, you know, I, in the past, the relationship I used to have was like, I would go in, have the difficult meeting, break the bad news. And then I would leave and leave the family kind of, you know, to, to say goodbye or do their thing. But yeah, now yeah. we're all on Zoom, right? So now, and the patient's in the hospital, I'm on Zoom with the family. And now the nurse takes, you know, the the Zoom, the, the tablet in the room. And now I've seen this whole other side that I was never kind of exposed to. Of course, I knew what happened when I left the door, mm -hmm. but I've never been a part of it. And now like one meeting after the next meeting, after the next meeting of like seeing these families say goodbye, mm -hmm. you know, to their loved ones on a tablet, like, I don't think I have the words like I again goosebumps right now like I don't have the words to describe it it's just it's it's yeah it's been a surreal year to see that you know I, I was actually going to even ask you about like telehealth and how how that's going and it's, I, I'm sure like it's a very different connection with your patients now yeah I mean like the core of what I've always done has been being present with people, right? So sitting in a room and a lot of like reading nonverbal body language and signs. And, you know, when a patient or a family starts crying, you can give them a tissue or you can, you know, 
kind of give them a reassuring touch or, you know, so all of that was kind of just stripped. Mm -hmm. And so now, you know, because of all the strict visitor policies this past year, it's been hours on the phone and on video chats with patients. Actually, actually, to be honest, like this past year, I haven't even talked to many patients. It's all been families because most of my consults where before I was seeing a lot of patients with dementia and cancer and heart failure and kidney failure, like somehow they all disappeared. And this past year was like all COVID. Um, And so most of the consults, like, you know, before I would say like most of my patients, like 50% were probably end of life and 50% would go home. Um, But now it was like all end of life this past year. And it was all like emergency consults. And it was kind of like, you know, palliative care consult. We need you to see this patient. They're going to tank. We need you to talk about goals of care. Um, and by the time we would get to them, most of them were already decompensating or already about to die. And so then basically just calling the family and saying like, they're dying, like, you know, had, so it, yeah. And a lot of them, you know, a lot of the patients were on ventilators and multi-organ failure. Um, and so it's just, it's crazy because COVID seemed to not just affect one patient, um, at least where I work, I work in inner city Baltimore. So it, 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 it affected families. So like when I would call a family, like it wasn't uncommon for them to already have lost someone to COVID or the whole family has COVID. And now this loved one is in the ICU or the husband and wife. Like I had one family, I had a husband in one room and the wife was in the next room and they both died at different times. And uh, like we had the son who gave it to the parents who got, like, it was just, horrible like just yeah so we coined this uh pandemic palliative care like it's totally different than what I was used to before and that was hard but now this is just like uh it's undescribable and um my husband's an ICU doctor so you know this year for us on top of all my surgeries and everything Mm -hmm. the fact that we survived we are I'm going to call myself a superhero and my husband too. No, no, thousand percent. And I, the work that y'all have been doing in the front lines, I just, I. I'm not going to take that credit because I'm, I do it behind a computer from home. My husband though, he's and the ER doctors and all of these, you know, not just doctors, but healthcare workers on the front lines, like they get all the credit. Uh, I won't take that, but no, I I what you're saying. No, still, still, I think telehealth, even like the work that you do is just, it's so important, not even just COVID, but even before and even after this. It's crazy because I'm 33, right? Um, But I feel like a very old soul Uh, (laughs) because I've seen so much, um, my perspective on life is very different. Um, Even when I talk to most of my friends, it's like, uh, you know, most 33 year olds don't see what I see, um, or what my husband sees. So it it totally shifts your perspective, um, on how you live your life and kind of what's important and what's not, you know what I mean? So when you, when you asked me that question earlier, like, what would you tell your 20 year old self? Like there's so much I would tell her, uh, (laughs) um, based off of what I've seen now, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So out of curiosity, what are some things that you've learned as an end of life doctor? What are some lessons learned? There's a few things like uh-huh. being surrounded by people at the end of life. There's a few things that I see as a pattern, like okay. 
you know, there's, there's a couple of questions I ask all my patients um, if they can talk to me. I ask them what brings them joy, which they're always caught off guard by. It's like, there's a doctor asking me what makes me happy. Like, you know, cause that really get, allows me to get to know that person. Like what makes them happy, right? Yeah. And then the other question is, is like, what's important for you for your quality of life? And tell me three things that just reflect on your life. Like what's the most important things that you've been through, your experiences, whatever. It's always like across those three questions, I always kind of get some variety of the same answer. My family's number one, right? And whenever there's regrets, it always has to do with like, I wish I wasn't, I didn't do this. I wish I didn't have a drinking problem. I missed out on their childhood. I wish I didn't fight with my brother. I wish I, like there was al it's always a regret that has to do with like something around family. Um, and then number two, there's a lot of uncertainty around death, right? Of course, what's next, but then also a lot of people associate death with suffering. Um, and so a lot of people say like, I don't want to be in pain. Like I want to be comfortable when I go. Uh -huh. um, and then number three is I want to be home. A lot of people don't want to die in a, in a hospital or in a nursing home. Like they want to be home again with their family, not in pain, not suffering. That's kind of the same pattern of things that I hear over and over again. Like I don't hear them saying like, oh yeah, I got a Lamborghini and I'm so proud of myself for all those hours that I worked and missed out on all my kids, you know, stuff. And like, like I've never heard that. Um, so it's, it, it puts a lot of, it, it puts a lot of perspective on life. Um, and, and I think the best analogy is this, like, you know, we're in our thirties, well, you know, maybe you're in your twenties, I'm in my thirties, but like, we, we think even now, like, you know, we're invincible. We have so much time left, right? Like, it's fine if I put this off, you know, I, I'll just keep do it tomorrow or the day after. And the truth is like, you know, life is really like, it's like a train ride, right? Like we're all on this train together, but no one knows when it's going to be their last stop. Right. Yeah. And, and it comes quick. It comes quick. You know, like I uh, took care of a patient last year. Um, and after this, I really had to drop to part-time because it was just getting too much for me, but um, she was, uh, it was just too much of me in her. And she, just had a baby and six weeks later was diagnosed with stage four cancer. And uh, I took care of her on and off for like three or four months. She would come in with symptoms and I would see her and we would talk and everything. And at the end, like the last few months before life, like her biggest goal, her son was like three or four months. Her biggest goal, okay, was to be able to give her son a bath on her own. Like that's what it was. That was her goal before she died, you know? It was crazy. And ultimately she ended up passing away a few weeks later, but it just puts, puts, puts so much perspective into life that it doesn't matter, you know, whether you're 80 or whether you're 30, like your stop could be tomorrow. So how are you living your life today? So that if tomorrow was your last day, like, could you say like, I've lived, I've lived my life, you know? Yeah. yeah. Sorry to get so heavy on you. <laughs> No, I, this is really good. And I think I've been reflecting a lot as well. Just, I think just being at home and like, yeah, you know, you're, you're kind of forced to do this, but um, I think I've, I've been thinking on like, what, like, what does it mean to live life and what does it mean to be happy? And I think that this is really important to know because it's like, it shouldn't be like you said, a Lamborghini. It shouldn't be for me. Like, Oh, I really just want to get into like this sort of grad school or I want to do this or achieve this in life. It should be like, 
it should be more like rooted in a sense. I mean, I think all those things are important too, right? Like to some extent, but I think it's, my point is kind of being intentional about life, right? Um, Like if you're in the moment, especially now, like you see everything and I'm guilty as charged too, like social media and just like the hustle bustle of life, like check this off my to-do list, check this off my to-do list, but there's no we're not intentional about a lot of things that we do. And I think, I think that was one of the biggest positives for COVID actually, like our, our just the sheer amount of time that we have spent on our deck, listening to the birds outside and run, chasing our kids in the backyard. Like we didn't do that before, which is crazy. Cause like we could have, yeah. but we were always rushing to, you know, a birthday party or this class or that class. And you realize like, you know, all our toddlers really want is for us to give them our undivided attention and to chase them around the backyard. Like that's all they want. And that's what brings them sheer joy. And that's what brings us joy. So like, I feel like that's the best part of the pandemic is that it has really allowed people to like, just step back and like reevaluate life and like what's important and like quality of life. And of course, like most people you talk to now will tell you that they know someone who knows someone or whatever that has died this year. So yeah, I think a lot of people are, are thinking about their life, right? Yeah. There's always, there's just so much that we want to do with life. And like, I know, like, as soon as I get back on my college campus, I have like four bucket lists ready of things that I didn't get to do in my first two years. And I you know a lot of us as students, and I know even as like professionals, we get caught up in like professional things or like academics for me and like, yeah, it's just important to take out time to do those things too. So totally, man, live your life now. And and I'll throw in another piece, right? Like you don't have time. So you now, whatever you want to do, just do it. Like the schoolwork, you're, I'm sure you're smart and you got everything figured out. You that will, that will happen. And those pieces of the puzzle will fall in place. But you know, your, your bucket list, like start checking those things off because once you have kids, it, life gets busy. Life, uh-huh. life really hectic and you kind of get you kind of get tied down a little bit more um for a short while but it's it's definitely a lot harder to do a lot of things um adventurous at least (laughs) yeah no definitely and so we like to end our episodes with this rapid fire so I kind of got a lot of these questions inspired from your Instagram as well as just talking to you as well so Canada or the U.S. Canada Canada (laughs) You know, that's home for me, man. Like I, I was born and raised there and um, my family's there and my roots are there. And there's just, Canadians are just awesome. They're just nice people and they're lovable. And um, yeah, it's always just going to be home. Um, I, I'm, I'm blessed. I, I feel grateful. I got my green card. So thank you. But, <laughs> but I always, I always say like, People be like, so your kids are American? I'm like, well, they're they're American, but made with Canadian parts. <laughs> <laughs> I I'm American, but I still like I have um, cousins in like Brampton, so okay, I yeah 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 there yeah. Um, but then Starbucks or Tim Hortons? Oh, Tim Hortons all day. Really? Yeah, <laughs> ice cap. Oh my god, ice cappuccinos are my favorite. I have to try that still. Everyone keeps talking about that, but <laughs> so good. So, so good. Although now I don't know, cause I haven't been home since I've gone vegan. So Ooh. I have to find a Tim Hortons that does a plant-based milk. Um, so I really hope I can find one. <laughs> I, I hope so too. I'm sure, I'm sure they hopefully, um, 
Cha or coffee? Coffee. Okay. Um, oat milk or almond milk? Oat milk. Yeah, oat milk is, is um, I feel like just creamier and um, I don't know, it just tastes better and it's better for the environment, I think. Yeah, almonds are not as eco-friendly. Yeah, yeah. They, they, um, the Starbuckses in New Jersey have an oat milk shortage right now because they just oh, really? used it and everyone loves it. So, yeah, actually, I've, I've started making it at home. So oh. that's, uh, uh, it's also a lot cheaper and and we just had this really nice coffee machine so now I can make oat milk lattes at home and um it's been really good on the wallet <laughs> yeah yeah I need to do that as a student I don't know why I'm constantly getting spend five dollars on a latte it's like oh man that racks up it does it really does um <laughs> carrot or orange juice orange juice freshly squeezed Ooh, um so now I want that um yeah. <laughs> Paprika or Pani Puri? Or Golgape, I don't know what you call it. Ooh, Golgape. Ooh. Oh, I love it. I love Golgape. I, um, every time my mom comes, and my mom's in Toronto, but every time she comes, she, you know, will, she is now also pretty much vegan after, so I, what I didn't tell you is in 2017, she got diagnosed again with breast cancer, and that was after 15 years. Wow. So after that, she really shifted her diet. Um, and so now you can check out her page. She loves to cook, but she's like on a mission to teach people how to cook, uh, Indian food, but plant-based and without oil. And like her recipes are so good. So every time she comes down, like she'll make us like gold guppish, she'll make us pakore, she'll make us like all of the Indian street food, but like, like a healthier version of them. Um, so my husband gets so happy when she comes. (laughs) That sounds amazing. What's what's her page? Is it is it Instagram page? Um, yeah, her page is at mini plates. M I N I plates. Um, she, she she's lately been on an air fryer kick, so she's like like trying to figure out how to make like all these things. You know, um, mati. You know, like the stuff that people yeah. eat with salt. She just yeah. made she just made that oil free in in the air fryer. She was just telling me today, uh, and she she uh, also like aloo tiki and like pakore in the air fryer without oil yeah so it's like kind of nice to like find a way like you were saying earlier like you know south asian foods are very unhealthy and so finding like a healthier way to eat them it, it's kind of nice for the soul it is yeah and i'm definitely gonna check that out yeah no it's it's easy and and her recipes are are really fun and um yeah definitely check her out She's, she's like really proud of, she's making all these like one minute videos, like the, the influencers. She's really proud of herself. It's awesome. I love it. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I love those videos. I will definitely go check that out soon. Um, Taco Bell or Chipotle? Oh, Chipotle all day. Chipotle is real food. Taco Bell is not real food. Very true. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, Chipotle, I'll, I will have um, a sofritas bowl top with like the fajitas and brown rice and black beans and lots of guacamole and yes I will pay extra for that (laughs) (laughs) worth it it's definitely worth it mango lassi or ruovza oh mango lassi now but ruovza when I was a kid uh but mango lassi now yeah just out of curiosity do you is there like a recommended plant-based like milk sub for that or like so we drink soy milk, organic soy milk, and I, it's nutritionally kind of the most 
it's probably the best substitution for dairy milk um, from a nutritional standpoint. My kids are younger, so that's why we drink that. But oat milk and soy milk are, te- are the creamiest. So uh-huh. that's what we use. So we don't do traditional lussi, but we do more of mango shake. So we'll use fresh mango or frozen mango with like plant-based milk and ice. So good. Well, sounds really, yeah. Blend it up. <laughs> um, and then the last question is rasgulla or gulab jamun? Ooh, gulab jamun. So good. Yeah. I, just, I don't know. There's just some something about that warm and super sweet combination makes it so good. Yeah. That like I'm genuinely very hungry now and I just have <laughs> great. Yeah, now you're making me want to eat Indian food. Actually, I I actually think we're gonna have that tonight. So good. All right. <laughs> great. I set the mood for it. Yeah. Um, but thank you so much, Simran, for taking the time to join us today and sharing your story with us and, and our listeners. And the work that you're doing on your Instagram page is absolutely amazing. And it's so fun to just like keep up with like all the things through life as well as learn so much from it. And so if you haven't checked out her page, please go make sure make sure to follow at drsimran.maludra. Thank you for tuning in to the Brown Woman Health Podcast and keep up with us by following us on Instagram at Brown Woman Health or Twitter. There are going to be multiple supplemental infographics that have to do with this episode and we hope to see you there.